This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Hey everybody, welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Pumpkin Spice Andrew. Not, uh, is it though? It's September 13th, which means, hey gang, it's pumpkin season. (laughs) I have, between the pumpkin bagel that I had for breakfast this morning and the second distinct pumpkin beer that I'm drinking right now, this is a, a second beer and also a second type of pumpkin beer. Okay. Because I saw two kinds of pumpkin beer that I wanted at the beer store and I couldn't decide, so I bought both. I have I think I've drank a whole pumpkin. Ate or drank a whole pumpkin today. <laughs> Even how do they put seeds in the beer? I know I don't think so. I'm just saying like I've I've had a lot of pumpkin. I'm more mm-hmm. pumpkin than man. Oh, okay. Well, good to know, because in case that, that comes up later. It might, who knows? Um, this is a podcast where we talk about books and also pumpkins. And, uh, Andrew, what book are you talking about this week? I'm talking about The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy. Yes, this was a Patreon recommendation from Katie G. Thank you, Katie. I think some other people had recommended it to us along the way, but Katie is one of our Patreon supporters, so it's her recommendation that counts. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had heard the name Arundhati Roy, but I had never read this book, so I'm glad that you did. Um, and that's the way that this Thanks. podcast works. In case I'm glad you, I read it too. Yeah, in case you, the listener, don't know, Andrew read the book, and he's going to tell me and by proxy you about it. Um, had you ever heard of it, Andrew? I had never heard of it. No. Okay. Yeah, Did because it? she was for a long time. This was the only novel she had written. Uh, this came out in 1997. She would worked on it for a few years before that, um, but after it came out, like. And not quite as a result of it coming out, but kind of a, a, as a result of other things happening in India. At the time, she kind of became more of a uh, political activist and nonfiction writer than a fiction writer. But she published in 2017 a book called The Ministry of Utmost Happiness, which is her second novel. So Ever. she's written two novels now. Yes. <laughs> um, she was... Uh, Mostly raised in the Kerala area of India. Um, her mom and dad divorced when she was two. Uh, I think she spent most of her time as a kid growing up with her mom. Um, she studied architecture and then uh, met a filmmaker named Pradeep Krishan, who she made a couple of films with. So she was doing like writing for the screen, both movies and TV in the 80s. Um, she won an award for her screenplay for a film called In Which Annie Gives It to Those Ones, or Gives It Those Ones, excuse me, which is a great name <laughs> for anything. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and that was inspired by her time like at architecture school, though she did uh, later get out of film. She was a little disillusioned um, and then hit it big a couple years later with God of Small Things. I think she started working on this on this like manuscript in like 92 or 93 and then by 96, it had a publishing deal, and she was off to the races. Um, and then, yeah, as you said, Andrew, she did a lot of like political writing. She won the Sydney Peace Prize for her advocacy. There's a collection of her essays called The Algebra of Infinite Justice, um, where she was actually... My favorite David Foster Wallace book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, she was a, was, a, a, law, yep. a book you wrote, a book you wrote about law as like a follow-up to Infinite Jest. Yes, that's true. Hmm. Um, Can I explain th- this joke more than I make it funnier if I did I'm that? I'm wondering if there are any good paralegal puns that we could make. Mm-hmm. Um, think about. Or some other justice-related pun. This court. Sure, yeah. Mm, I think you're out of order right yeah. now is what I've got to say. <laughs> oh, my God. About this attempt at a joke. <laughs> Uh, she actually... Find you in contempt of the podcast. Oh, there you go. She was awarded... Um, 
uh, like recognition for that for that collection from India's Academy of Letters, but she refused because of the Indian government. Um, the collection focused on like nuclear bomb testing that had recently started um, in general Western imperialism. And you know, I think there's some essays in there about the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. Yeah. So she writes uh, there's a there's a short interview with her in the back of the edition of the book that I read uh, conducted by Random House Readers Circle. OK. And sometimes you just get the impression that they. Go. They went into this interview, maybe hoping for slightly anodyne answers, <laughs> and I think she keeps pretty consistently giving them a little bit more than I think they they were asking. Sure, for, which is which is a good thing. But anyway, um, she's talking about they they asked her, um, got a small things won the Booker Prize, became an international bestseller. What was it like to have your debut novel generate that level of response? In what ways has your life changed since the novel's publication? So a pretty innocuous question. Yeah. And she starts off saying, you know, it happened so fast I could barely keep up with it. Um, But afterwards, after she published the book, uh, things changed dramatically. Just a year after the book came out, a right-wing Hindu chauvinist government came to power in India. Within months, it conducted a series of nuclear tests. They were greeted with glee in the mainstream media and a paroxysm of shrill nationalist posturing by an emerging middle class. The air turned very ugly. At the time, I was being celebrated for having made India, whatever that means, proud. It was an odd place to be in because I wasn't feeling at all proud of India or what was going on here. I saw a terrible darkness ahead. As it turns out, I was not wrong about that. That's a great answer. <laughs> yeah. So from there, she she wrote an essay called The End of Imagination, Condemning the Nuclear Tests. Mm-hmm. And um, it was and she says it was also the, the beginning of an incredible journey into other worlds, worlds of incredible courage and grace and complexity, far more exciting than anything I'd ever known before, far more exciting than prizes and bestseller lists. So she does very strongly imply that one of the reasons why she didn't go on to write more novels immediately after this is because she found other work she was doing more fulfilling and, yeah, yeah. and necessary, I guess. I found a review of another collection of hers um, in the New Yorker by Samantha Sabranian uh, called Subremaining, excuse me, called The Prescient Anger of Arundhati Roy. Um, and it's kind of a mixed review of the collection, but opens with an interesting, like, thinking like guidepost of like India turned 50 the year that this book came out. And like you just said, like I think she was very aware of herself as a symbol of India, like Indian culture, like internationally, um, certainly with all the renown for the book. And then immediately, yeah, the next year there's a whole bunch of right wing stuff that she is totally uncomfortable with and kind of, how do you grapple with that? Um, because, the also the Booker Prize stuff was controversial as well, um, because it, it was like such a strong seller and had a lot of media support, and there were a lot of folks saying like, "Well, this is too much of a like populist choice for the Booker Prize. We need to make it more exclusive." Um, and then there were also people who were you know charge levying obscenity charges at this book. Um, did you see anything about that, Andrew? Uh, only insofar as she talked about it a little bit in this interview, she was talking about, I'm not hundred percent sure when this interview was conducted. Um, I think it must've been relatively recently, but she's saying, um, that it was the subject of a, of a court case. Uh, she says I was charged with corrupting public morality, which is a criminal offense. The case dragged on for years after I won the Booker and judge uh, after I won the Booker, the judge in the Koshan High Court was worried about saying anything at all. Perhaps he didn't want to anger the Marxist government, which had taken great offense to the book, but he didn't want to give a judgment on a book that had become so high profile either. And she says that a new judge came along and threw the case out around a year before the interview was. Taken oh, place. sure. Let me just look at where the publication date of this. Okay. Was. Yeah. Uh, this uh, yeah. this complaint was filed um, by a 29 year old lawyer. Um, and according to a contemporaneous article from the New York Times, uh, it is similar to other nuisance litigation regularly filed against India's very rich film stars. Um, it is hard to find anyone who has even heard of the dude who filed the complaint. And when reached by phone by the New York Times, he declined to explain what exactly about the book had offended him so much. Um, and that Random House was certainly welcome to have the book be the subject of such like obscenity charges because that could only help its reputation in the u.s 
Okay, uh, it looks uh, this this uh, the the stuff in the back of this copy was uh, copyright two thousand eight, so not as okay. recently as I thought it might have been. But okay. it's still like a good decade on after that book is published. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, that's most of it. I think uh, she has been an outspoken critic of kind of multinational corporations and you know larger capitalist problems that we are still dealing with today, where they are kind of weakening individual nations and hurting you know working people in countries worldwide and in particular you know from her perspective india she has supported Kashmir independence which she's gotten a lot of heat for um and that's like in the news right now as we record this in september 2019 so that's just like she has kept busy in between her two books Right. And if you read this book and are like, why aren't there more? Like, there's plenty of Arundhati Roy to go read <laughs> if you <laughs> if you want to. Um, and now let's talk about the book itself and what happens therein. Who is the god and what is their small things? Are there small things? So thing thing one, and you already know this because we slacked about it, but I think the the audience at home needs to know that every time I tried to think of the name of this book while I was reading it, all I could think of was the Blink-182 song, All the Small Things. So just sing God of Small Things. Now that Using was, that tune. <laughs> now that song was on the album Enema of the State from 1999. Mm-hmm. So maybe... They got the title from this book. From the book. Yeah, that's a, that's a good headcanon. I like that. Yeah. Big, Blink-182, big R and Dottie Roy fans. <laughs> uh, so the God of Small Things thing is actually not something <laughs> that I want to discuss until like the end. Okay, that's cool. Because you just, you need to know, to, to understand it, you need to know like a lot of other contextual stuff. Sounds like a book. Yeah, because you only really get to the point of the book where they'd say the title like right toward the end like late title card i love it yeah um (laughs) it's a very long cold open on this book (laughs) the deal with the book is it's it's it is told it's it's kind of a decade spanning tale um and it's told all out of order so the two main time periods that you're dealing with are uh, there's a time in the late 60s where uh, esther and rahel are a couple of they're uh, seven or eight years old. They're fraternal twins, and they are living with multiple generations of their family in a house in India. And then later in the nineties, um, Esther and Rahel are thirty-one, and they are back together in India after a lot of other stuff has happened, and they've both been separated for a really long time. Okay. And the book, it kind of. It kind of end. It begins with the end. Like you, you get this description of this of this girl named Sophie Mall who has died. Um, she's a she's a, around the same age as Esther and Rahel, and you don't know why it's happened or who was involved or or what the deal was, but you know that it's kind of torn this family apart. And the rest of the book, you spend exploring the family dynamic and then you don't actually get the scene where she dies until pretty close to the end but you know it's Um, gonna happen but you know it's gonna happen and we'll and we likewise we will come back to that at the at the end because like midway through the book i was like when are we gonna are we gonna get to this part (laughs) but then by the end we do get to it and i was like oh oh i see i see what you did there so Tarantino also stole a lot from Arundhati Roy, is what you're Let's, saying? Yeah, exactly. Okay, sure. <laughs> so what? So where does the the timeline start then? Like, do, is it like jumping back from this death to like them as kids? Is that what it does first? Or it's not even. It's it's very fluid. Like you you'll be reading along and you'll get all of a sudden this like flashback to this person's life and you'll just you'll be exploring their timeline for a little little while it doesn't even it's not even helpful to say it starts here and then it proceeds on through this because it is like the the present day timeline and the past timeline both vaguely move forward as the book goes yeah that's a good way to do it okay it's very like mixed up in terms of (laughs) How it's delivered. In terms of how you're actually actually reading it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and tell it as close to chronologically as I as I can. And then maybe we can discuss how it gets chopped. 
Yeah, as it as it's appropriate. Okay. Um, so Essa and Rahel are living in a house with their mom Amu, who like she left home at a fairly young age and went and married somebody who ended up being an alcoholic and abusive. And so she gets divorced. She moves home. That's not really looked upon very kindly because as you know, in, in many cultures, divorce was not like, was yep. not a thing to, to be advertised for a long time. Am I correct? You um, said, did you say this was like the sixties? Is that when this is? Yeah, I think it's like 67, 69, I think. Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, She's living in this house with Essa and Rahel, who, again, fraternal twins, a boy and a girl, and um, her brother, Chaco, who was married to an English woman, had a daughter. That daughter is Sophie Mall, the girl at the beginning of the book who has passed away. Um, they're also living with uh, Amu and Chaco's mother. Uh, Mamachi is her name. Um, Papachi, the dad beat her all the time and is and has died but of course his shadow falls over the rest of the family and he's referenced multiple times in the book okay um, and then also in this house is papachi's sister uh, baby kochama she's called baby kochama i think because she was the younger sister and but, so she's just called a baby for oh her great life, but now right? she's an adult <laughs> but she's like an old woman now but she's still baby kochama awesome. and she is she is as close as the book has to a villain i think like she oh. is really she is really vile to I wasn't sh- a lot of people okay that's one and way you can go with an elder in a family because you got you go that way or you go like the grandma you go coco way like you go like yeah, those are the two ways. Those are the only two ways that you can have elders in your story. I'm putting my foot down now. Is either they're old and embittered by their past experience or they're dead skeletons. No. Is that wait, what you're saying? No. Isn't the grandma's name Coco? No. The boy's name is Coco? The movie Coco's great. I don't remember much about it except that it made me cry. I have, I have no idea what point you're trying to make. Just that there's the old grandma that he wants to like save. That sure. like needs emotional saving, yes. right? Um, sure. It's either that or it's evil old people is what... My, that's my point. I'm an expert on this book <laughs> old and I'm sure... Old people are either good or evil. Yeah, that's okay, cool. So Baby Thank Koshama you. is evil. She, <laughs> you get her villain origin story in kind of a flashback. She, So she had fallen in love with a member of the clergy. Um, is, he was an Irish priest, I think, who came into india and i think this was pre-independence you you did some looking yeah that was 19 timeline yeah 1947 was independence so it's interesting to think about this book as like being about characters born in the generation after independence yeah um so there was the independence act of 1947 that set it up into the two independent states of india and pakistan it also rearranged kind of the Punjab and Bengal territories and set up the rest of the government. Um, A few years after that, and we'll get into this later, I bet is when the like government of India formally gets rid of the caste system. Um, But it's still a big part of Indian society, even though it is not a legal part of Indian society. Yeah. So we'll, yeah, we'll talk about that in, in just a minute. Um, But yeah, the, the, Last thing you need to know about Baby Kuchama, she fell in love with this this priest. She become she like joins the clergy trying to get closer to him, but of course he never recipro- reciprocates her feelings. And so her whole life becomes defined by this sort of disappointment and resentment about like not being able to to have this person who she wanted. And by the time you you are up to the 1960s storyline in in the book she is just fully taking out her own disappointments on everybody in the entire world. oh good <laughs> and it's and it's not a it's it is not that she is totally without sympathy but she does some really nasty stuff sure like truly truly nasty and it and it only begets like more self-serving nastiness like she she has got nobody she's looking out for nobody but baby kochama 
it, is it not um is it the kind of person who is like fighting to keep the family together or is it no just... it's not it's not even that it's, okay it's just like she is she has been denied uh, uh, the kind of life that she wanted i guess and she so she is going to take that out on everybody around her for yeah that's her life. a reasonable goal i suppose <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Um, so, who else? Do, is there anyone else we need to meet, or do you want to move to uh, Esta, the twins? The other, the, the other, the other major character that you need to know about is this guy named Voluta, who is um, who is part of this Dalit caste, yes. the Untouchable caste mm-hmm. in India, and he is a sort of worker. Th- this family owns a like a pickle factory (laughs) a pickle production zone they own a place where you you pickle things you make jams and pickles pickles and preserves paradise pickles and preserves is the name of it it is not a like assembly line that spits out pickles it's not like a version of charlie and a chocolate factory but you go in and it's just a big stinky vinegar river Okay, but it is some sort of pickling <laughs> business. It is a yeah, they make they make pickles and preserves and it's it's modestly successful, I guess. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but Valutha works there and he is a member of this untouchable cast and he is sort of a role model slash father figure for Esther and Rahel mm-hmm. who don't have a, a dad who's around. And then later he and Amu uh, start meeting clandestinely and he is the god of small things and oh. I, let me just read you the this is like towards the end after the main action of the book where you just get this very quiet little coda which is actually talking about the relationship that they have that drives so much of the other action in the book um so they are like amu sees him being sweet with her kids and it makes her see him as like a man, even though he is part of this untouchable cast and has this like undesirable status. Um, Even later on the 13 nights that followed this one, instinctively they stuck to the small things. The big things ever lurked inside. They knew that there was nowhere for them to go. They had nothing, no future. So they stuck to the small things. They laughed at ant bites on each other's bottoms at clumsy caterpillars, sliding off the ends of leaves at overturned beetles that couldn't write themselves at the pair of small fish that always sought Valutha out in the river and bit him at a particularly devout praying mantis at the minute spider who lived in a crack in the wall of the back veranda of the history house and camouflaged himself by covering his body with bits of rubbish. Um, so yeah, that's the deal. That's him. Okay. That makes sense. So what is, do you want to talk about cast now or do you want to talk about the arc for the twins? Uh, talk. We can talk about casts a little bit, like if, if you want to talk about kind of the history of this and, and the present day version of this. Yeah, I think it is. It is not entirely unlike um, racism in America, right? Where like the Constitution of India officially like abolishes this untouchable caste. Like legally, they have a lot of protections. There are some like affirmative action things in place. Um, but in practice, and especially like, I guess, depending on how the government is deciding to enforce and interpret certain laws, depending on who's in charge at the time. And, and especially like in, in smaller communities and like interpersonally, they still like face a lot of discrimination, right? Yes. Like systemic, systemically, they still deal with a lot of stuff, even though officially things have been done to quote unquote correct the problem yes so and roy has made that comparison herself in interviews to american slavery and racism so i think it is a good one yeah Um, i've also i also read it compared to apartheid yes 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 yeah um what is what is interesting about it like if you zoom out and you just want to get like academic about it it is like three thousand years old and it is it was written into um you know hindu texts from thousands of years ago uh possibly because a population that moved into the indian region needed kind of a system to subjugate people who were there um that's unclear um but the actual belief of it 
the actual belief of it comes from Hinduism that each of the four main castes uh, are a part of the creator god Brahma. Um, so you have the top caste, the Brahmins, um, who are like the priest's religious caste. You have the ruler or warrior caste, which are the uh, Kshatriyas. You have the Vaishas, who are the tradesfolk, and the Shudras, who are the laborers. Um, and then you thereby have an implicit caste where everyone who is not that is the untouchables or the Dalits or what I think is now under the like in the government's terminology called scheduled castes. Um, and the untouchables were given the duties of uh, anything that was called considered impure. So dealing with waste that is like human waste or dead things or, you know, cleaning sewage and blood and stuff. And literally, like, if you touch them, it is bad and you should go, like, clean yourself. Um, you should not be near them. Um, it is, it is like, that is the belief, right? Yeah, so that, that idea of, like, uncleanliness still is, is one of the things that still persists yep. to this day. So there's a BBC article from, from 2012 that I was reading um, that, it, like, if you want an idea of, like, the subtlety of how this, how this persists, um, it's... Uh, interviewing a doctor who who has walked into a bar and he asks for a, a drink and the and the guy gives him some tea and asks what caste he belongs to and the doctor says i am i am a dalit and then the uh the guy who has handed him the drink says in that case wash your glass when you are done and yeah. it's just like then like sometimes they can't get haircuts like if they sometimes if they start a business people will not buy the stuff that they're selling and I'm sure, you know, the, the, India is a huge country with a huge population. And, and and I am sure there are places where this is more evident than other places. Just like mm-hmm. in America, there are places where I think racism is more visible yes, than yes, yes, other yes. places. But, um, and, but, but yeah. So like it's, it is the, the influence of the caste system is waning, you know, formally and has been. I was watching a short documentary on it. Um, before we started recording and like you get a range of folks who are like folks maybe our age who are like yeah it's it's a thing we all know about it but we I'm pretty open-minded and I have friends in different casts and whatever and then you have folks who are like no I taught my kids that you don't like you wouldn't touch a Dalit person and you're like oh that's hmm okay um, they had their first Dalit president in 1997 there was the Prevention of Atrocities Act that was passed in 1995 that was supposed to limit a lot of like violence and active discrimination. Of course, it still takes place. Um, and the other thing to know is that like when the British came in and conquered India, they really seized upon the caste system to help you know subjugate India. Oh yeah, um, that's that's the. And that that is just how you that's how you conquer a place like that yep. happens in Roman history all the time is yep. is a lot of that like just to take as an example a lot of that blending between like the the Roman and the Greek pantheons of, oh, of gods sure. was like the Romans trying to use Greek culture in a in a way that integrated it better into mm-hmm. their empire and like and made the people like happier with Roman rule so yeah. Yep. Yep. Currently, as of the 2011 census, uh, 16% of the Indian population um, is estimated to come from the Dalit class, uh, Dalit caste. Um, So it's a pretty sizable portion of the country. And it's it is still a an issue today and was certainly an issue when the book was written. So how does that affect our protagonists are they they are not from that that cast no they, they are not from that cast that Voluta is the main character who you get who is from that cast and, and the fact that he is an untouchable even though you know they aren't su- supposedly untouchables are not supposed to be a thing yes when this story is taking place you're still talking about you know british rule was very recent the constitution of india was very recent so of course you're gonna have a lot of people who still think this way kind of instinctively Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even though, like legally, it's not supposed to be that way anymore. Yeah. Um. So, let me just try and and, and set out just a timeline of events really fast because it is it, it all. It's a bunch of disparate stuff that all kinds of comes together at the end. Yeah. Um, so, so far, what I know is that we're gonna 
you know, meet, befriend, and welcome in an untouchable into our family, and also someone we cared about died, and there's a evil grandma or something. <laughs> so I need a little bit more information, is what I'm saying. She's not a grandma. That's the whole point. Is she's like an evil? Oh snap! Okay. <laughs> if she had been a grandma, maybe none of this would have ever happened. <laughs> okay. Um. So what is what is happening is. Okay, they the family is driving to another city to a movie theater to see the sound of music. And this is something that uh, Arundhati Roy has talked about. This is a thing that that really happened is you wouldn't get a lot of English language films coming in. And so driving elsewhere to see them like sound of music in particular was one one for her, but driving other other places to to see these movies and like get a taste of this culture was it's kind of there's like a ceremonial aspect to it. Sure. She sa- okay. she says it's like going to church, like I'm going off of what she says there. Um but the family has gone to see the movie The Sound of Music and two things happen on this trip. The first thing is that as they are driving the car is sort of overtaken by this communist mob and they are sort of looking into the car with with the whole family there and mocking baby Kochama in particular mm. just kind of kind of humiliating her and um what's the what's the exact um yeah they, they, they are, make her they make her wave a red flag and and chant you know communist slogans against her ooh. kind of against her will and she and she does it hmm i just said ooh oh i thought you said who no <laughs> like you're asking a question or you're doing an owl impression um <laughs> And she is, she is, she does not want to do this, but she also just wants all these people to go away. And so she's sort of mortified, but uh, Rahel identifies or thinks she identifies uh, Valuta in, in this, in this group of, of people who sort of, who, who make baby Kochama do this stuff. Okay. Um, so that happens on the way there. And once they are there, they're in the theater. Um, Esther is antsy and sort of talking and not really paying attention to the movie and so Amu tells him like if you're gonna like sing could you like go out and do it and not do it in the theater where everybody's (laughs) trying to watch the movie and so when he like he goes out and does that and there's this guy who is identified only as the orange drink lemon drink man Oh, because he is like a concessions vendor and he's selling orange drinks and lemon drinks, among other things. Um, he makes Esther like give him a hand job. Oh, so he molests Esther basically and then gives him a lemon drink. Oh, okay. And. So from this, so from this encounter, from this experience, a couple of different things happens. One is Esther decides, you know, you need to be because, like, Esther goes back into the movie theater. He is feeling kind of sick, so Amu comes out with him, and then there's this whole exchange where Amu and the orange drink, lemon drink man, like, exchange pleasantries. And it becomes clear that he like knows where Esta lives and could come and find him if he wanted. Ah. And so Esta Esta decides you need to be ready for anything. Like anything could happen, and you need to be ready for it. So he starts amassing. Like he he and he and Rahel start kind of amassing some supplies and hiding them in this house that's across a river from the from a family, like kind of an abandoned house that nobody goes to anymore and that's the i'd mentioned the history house earlier in a passage that i read and that's what they're they're talking about is okay. this this house that that they're like embodies like the the history of of i think not not just their family but also like the the transition from british rule to like indian independence and kind of oh that, okay you know the 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 sense of time passing, I guess, if that makes sense. Is it like um, owned by someone else or is it just, I don't, I don't recall the provenance of the, of the history house. I just know that it's <laughs> abandoned. I read the, listen, I, I am trying really hard not to play the newborn baby. Card no, you're doing a these, great job in these post paternity episodes. But I did read this book over the course of like several weeks and 
there were a lot of sleepless nights involved. No, that's fine. I'm just thinking, so I'm not prepared with an answer to that particular question. I'm just thinking to like when I was a kid and there were certainly, you know, houses in your neighborhood who you don't know who lives there and it's kind of like a spooky house or there was a construction of like a bunch of new houses by my house and we spent a lot of evenings like roaming around in semi-built houses which was super dangerous. Yeah, there but, are certainly there are certainly stories like about a like a ghostly man who yeah allegedly like wanders the woods around that house but i don't it's not like crucial to the it's just like stuff it's, that I, it's not crucial to do. the stuff i'm talking about yeah and i'm sure it's like thematically important and, and whatever and if i were doing a very <laughs> deep literary close read of this book i would have a whole bunch of stuff prepared to talk about it That's but funny. i'm so tired my baby screamed at me for a solid hour last night i'm sorry to hear that do you want just, yeah uh-huh i love him so much but i don't like hanging out with him that much yeah well he's not a friend because he's yet. just a little he's just a little scream machine he's a little scream and poop machine that's true and i have a i have a lot invested in him staying alive and healthy and so far we're doing a good job of that yeah but he's not always a chill hang no not at, oh he's not a chill hang no and no. so you know, my, okay. I am. I have prepared a specific track that sure. I'm going to take through this book. And Get me back me on that de- track. If you ask me to deviate from the track, I'm not going to have good answers <laughs> for you. That's fine. And that is just where we are. Get right me now. back on that track, there, bud. There, there's so so. Esther, 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 Esther. Excuse me. Esther has started like just prepping for the worst, like prepping for life to throw. Yeah, curve sort balls. of doomsday prepping a little bit. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, and baby Kochama has like, even, even beyond his status as an untouchable, she has sort of seized upon Veluta as this like symbol of this crowd and the thing that, that was done to her. And she becomes increasingly agitated about it later on. Um, the other thing that happens in this, in this window is, um, so you'll remember that Chaco, who's Amu's brother, uh, Esta and Rahel's uncle, was married to an English woman. Her name is Margaret, and they together have a daughter named Sophie. And Sophie is dead at the beginning of the book. Yes. But, you know, midway through the book, after the incident with the Sound of Music and the communist mob, you get Margaret and Sophie coming to India to see the family because Margaret's second husband has died. Okay. And she and Chaco still have sort of a friendly relationship. Like they, they drifted apart because he is a, like an absent-minded slob professor type basically. (laughs) And she was just, she, she found that very charming for a while and then stopped finding it charming as I just assume that most people would. That's an interesting little character marriage in a nutshell. I like that little character note. Sure. Yeah, so uh, Sophie has come into town, and Esta and Rahel are sort of tentatively befriending her. How um, old are they at this point? Are they teens? They're they're no, they're seven or they're eight. still seven. They're, or eight. Okay, okay. Yeah, they're they're pretty young kids. I'm um, not, I wasn't sure if any time had passed. My apologies. Go no, ahead. yeah, yeah. The the time, I think it's it's weeks or a couple of months as opposed to years, like sure. within each. Like in the past timeline, it's definitely weeks or a couple of months. In the present timeline, it is a couple of days because you get you're just getting. That's like, how those stories always go. That is yeah, always like like how you do Rahel, that. Rahel and Esta, after many years apart, have come back together, and it's just kind of dealing with picking up the pieces. And to understand the couple of things that happen in the present day timeline, you have to spend a million years. Yes. in the past. Correct. Okay. That's how. Okay. It sure. Go. I have um, not. Is there, what else do we need to know about Rahel? Like, I feel like I have no idea who Rahel is. I mean, she is, she's the protagonist, and you're getting the story, like, not exclusively through her eyes, but, like, the present-day portion, especially through her eyes. Okay. Um, she is... Things you need to know about Rahel, like, she has a very deep and close relationship with Esther because they're twins. Like, they, they see themselves as like parts of the same whole in a way. And so they've been separated for a lot of years. Um, The other thing that you need to know is that like Esther was sent away 
sort of forcibly a little bit like this family was broken up shortly after this this thing with Valuta and Amu happens, which we're going to talk about. Um, and Rahel spends a lot. She just kind of drifts around. She spends a few years in America. There's a good um, passage I'm going to read here. Uh, Rahel drifted into marriage like a passenger drifts toward an unoccupied chair in an airport lounge with a sitting down sense. With a sitting down sense? She just It's just kind of a thing. It's just okay. kind of a thing to do. That's amazing. <laughs> so she's kind of drifting through her life because... I don't know because and it talks the the other thing to know is that Esther and Rahel are 31 in the present day part of the book. Amu was 31 when the like the past stuff yeah, is happening. Yeah, makes sense. And it's talking a lot about um 31 being somewhere in between young and old. Huh. Uh, gentle half moons have gathered under their eyes and they are as old as Amu was when she died. 31, not old not young, but a viable, diable age. I think getting at that, getting at that thing that, I don't know if it starts to set in. I don't, I don't know what your relationship to this is, but when you get to your like late twenties, early thirties and you lose that feeling of, of, of invincibility that kind of comes with teenagerhood and early twenties. Oh yeah. And like, maybe nobody in your circle of friends has dealt directly with death or like terminal illness, but you definitely start to like know people who have, or like know people who know people. Yep. It just becomes a thing that is more a topic of conversation than you have had the privilege to encounter before, or you've had the, you've had the privilege to avoid it before rather. Um, Because everybody's like, it's, freaking logan's run and everybody's a gorgeous 21 year old (laughs) or whatever it is and then you all hit 30 or 31 and everyone's knees fall off or you know someone is starting a family and then like doctors are just a part of your lives in the way that they were not before or Mm -hmm. you're you are now in a career where you meet people who are older than you and actually like develop friendships with them in a different way that happened that's that's or even or even you start to deal with in your like family too, yeah. Medical stuff through your through your parents, like that's yeah. been a big thing with with my dad. Is he ignored the fact that he was borderline diabetic for so long that he became actually diabetic, but didn't like I appreciate see any doctors I about it. Appreciate the awareness campaign that you've turned your dad into on this podcast. I think I you're doing just, a good job. That's all I want to say about. It. I think you're doing a good job of raising awareness about an important medical thing. I don't even know how much I've talked about it. I just know that <laughs> I just I just know that I want him to take slightly better care of himself, and I think he's on that path now. But what if he had been what on if that he path not? ten years ago? And Tell so that's me, that's yeah. you know that's informing a lot of my own relationship with doctors at this point. Tell me about anyway, the books, Amu books. thing the the thing that you said there's an event that occurs that causes Esta to get sent away, um, or or precipitates it rather so what what happens like what what comes to a head is voluta is is a sort of father figure to esta and rahel there's a there's a if you want a concrete example of this as esta is trying to find a place where he can hide in in the event that this orange drink lemon drink man comes to screw up his life yep he wants to go to this history house, which is across a river. They find this old boat kind of buried in the, in the underbrush. They don't know who it used to belong to. It's, it is leaky. It's not great. And, and like Voluta helps to repair it. Okay. And Amu sees Voluta being sweet with her kids. And, you know, she is, she is 31. She is not, young but she's not old either she is divorced like there there are not people coming and calling because you know a divorced woman is not like prime real estate in this time and in this society um and so they start meeting and and they start this romantic relationship that they know because of his untouchable status like primarily because of that and also a little bit because of amu's family they know it can't go anywhere, but they'd start doing it anyway. Sure. Um, and so what happens on the same day is that 
baby Kochama like finds out about this and goes nuts on <laughs> she <laughs> she just really gives Volutha the business oh, and man. she like goes to the cops and tries to say that he you know he forced himself upon <sighs> Amu even though this is not this is not the case um so this has happened and Volutha like he loses his job and so he he leaves and he goes to the history house which is this you know it's an it's where he and Amu were, you know, meeting and having their trysts, but it's also just a place that nobody usually goes. And so it's a place where he can kind of hide and regroup for a little bit as he tries to figure out, you know, how to how to move forward after his life has been blown up. Um, at the same time, um, because this has happened, like Amu blows up on Estad Rahel. And basically says, you know, y- you are millstones around my neck. Like you are wow. the reason. You are the reason I can't be happy. And there, there have been a couple instances where Amu has sort of done or said careless things to them that let, especially get into Rahel's head. Like she, there's this whole sequence during the, you know, the Sound of Music trip where Rahel does something, and Amu says something along the lines of like, every time you do something bad, it makes me love you a little less. Cool. And so this, this idea of their mother's love being like this finite thing that can be exhausted sort of dominates her, her relationship with her, with her mom and her, you know, her actions. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, and so they basically, they decide to run away from home and they decide to go to the history house because it's this place where they've been stockpiling stuff. It's a place they have to go and they can just go and do it. And Sophie, who has sort of tentatively befriended them, wants to come along too. And this is, I mean, this is getting real close to the end of the book where this finally happens as they are rowing this boat. You know, it's just, it's just rained for a couple of days. The river is deceptively you know, swollen with extra water. Uh, it's nighttime and they're rowing across and this, you know, just a big clump of like branches or something comes floating down the river and hits the boat and knocks it over. And Esther Rahel, who have, who have made this trip a bunch of times and sort of know about the river and know what to do, make it to the shore and you don't see Sophie Mall again. Oh, and so she is, she drowns in the river and somebody finds her down the river and like fish have eaten out her eyes. And it's just like, a, it's okay. not, a, it's not a good scene. So, uh-huh. okay. So why do they come back together? What are they working through in the present day that is related to this like terrible incident as we kind of, because it sounds like this is like the closing of the book. So like, what well, is I'm it? Well, I'm not a hundred percent done with like the past oh. timeline. Oh, either. sure, sure, sure. Is, okay. That okay, so baby Kochama went to the cops, remember? Yes, I do remember. She went to the cops. She went to the cops because she's a narc. <laughs> she baby narcama over here. Baby narcama. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, you know, she says to the police officer, This guy has done this thing to my my niece, and you gotta go, you know, you gotta go find him and you gotta bring him in. Because he is untouchable, the cops, of course, beat. beat him within an inch of his life Jesus, and because it looks like he's going to die like to deflect responsibility for that they start to threaten baby Kochama and they say you know you need to have the person who was assaulted come in and say she was assaulted or we're going to nail you for you know coming in and filing a false police report oh my god (laughs) and so baby Kuchama starts to lean on the kids who, you know, when, when, uh, Valutha is beaten, the kids are there hiding. Like Esther and Rahel are there after Sophie Mall's death. Like they are both terrified because this, they've just lost their cousin and they don't, you know, they don't know what's going to happen after, after everybody finds out, you know, what's gone down. They sort of see and hear Valutha getting beaten by the cops. So they know like the truth of what has happened. Yep. 
and now baby Narcama's in like and so and so them. she she kind of leans on them to say you know I saw him he did this and so Esther Esther decides you know to save their mother he will he will tell this thing that he knows to be a lie about Valuta like while he while this guy is on his deathbed like he's gonna die either way but okay he he is he's been told that he has to like save the family by by doing this thing and so that like the the end result of this is that like the Esta and Rahel have to be are like separated and Amu is like you know as soon as I get a job as soon as I can get on my feet we'll bring the family back together but we just can't do it right now Esta like stops talking because of all this stuff that's happened to him between the orange drink lemon drink guy and having to you know say this thing about Valutha that he knows isn't true and the loss of Sophie you know he's yeah he's having this whole thing Um, and so the the twins of come back together they've been recalled and again again unfortunately this was the thing that happened at the beginning of the book so i don't even remember exactly why they are all you know coming back okay okay um but esther and rahel you know they used to be this this unit they used to be this one entity that's been split and then like i guess to make up for all the years of of like being apart and to like reaffirm their closeness like towards the end of the book they have sex oh and then you get the little bit you know i read that that portion of Valuta and amu's relationship um and that's kind of it like you you get a little bit earlier like what happened to amu is she just kind of she she tries to do jobs but she is you know, she's not doing great. And then she dies at 31. Huh? Like with all this unresolved stuff hanging around, but that's, I think that that is, that's the main huh. body of, of the text. Yeah. It sounds like it. And like Esther never sees her, never, never sees his mom again after she like sends him away after all this stuff happens. Okay. This, <sighs> that sounds like it's a bummer at the end. It's kind it sounds of like a it's a bummer, bummer the whole bummer. way through. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is, you know, beyond just having an having an infant in the house, that's a little bit of why it took a while to read is it's it plays with language a lot and it is it is not an unfunny book, but it's just yeah, like yeah, it's a lot of it is very heavy. Is it um like it's they're talking about that spider, you know, who covers himself with, with stuff. And it says, you know, they were wrong about the spider. He outlived Valutha. He followed future generations. He died of natural causes. Oh God. And that's just tough. Yeah. So what about, as we wrap up here, what about the book? Do you think, can you imagine either like fueled it's, bestseller angle because it did become the the like the best-selling book by an indian author that was not an expatriate like i think probably the best-selling book indian by an indian author other than like salman rushdie i would imagine i could be a little bit wrong there um or like what about its style appeals to like the man booker prize crowd like it i've seen a little bit of a magical realism illusions but i don't know that you've really spoken to that so maybe that's not accurate it's yeah it's i think it the way it plays with with language sort of evokes magical realism but i there aren't a lot of i guess elements that i would associate with classical magical realism like here in this, like, like the it's mar- not, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. like Rahel gets so sad about the stuff that happens that her tears like become the river that like kills that, Sophie or something. <laughs> oh my god! Like, oh my god! That's okay, a, that's kind of a that's a parody of of what a magical realism <laughs> yeah. book would be. But the it does have a, and I think maybe partly because you're getting most of it through the like eyes of a child, it does kind of have a kind of a floaty sort Whimsy? of a, sort of unmoored mm. like. It is not fully anchored in like adult reality because it's not being told from the perspective of somebody yes. okay. like that. So okay. I, yeah, I, I thought to myself about the magical realism thing. It's not like the number one thing that came into my head, but it's certainly an element of, of what the book is doing. 
Uh, yeah, just the the structure of it, the way it jumps around, I'm sure would appeal to the Booker Prize crowd, like people who are just thinking about what is an interesting way to structure a story, what's an interesting way, like an innovative way to write a book. Sure. Um, I am sure that... I, how do, I, I'm trying to, I'm struggling with how I want to say this, but I think because it's a book that's so deeply about Indian culture, mm. like it, it can just, it can become the book about Indian culture that, and I wonder an American, that, that an American audience has to read, you know, do you know, do you yes. get what I'm trying no, to say? I know, you're, yeah. I know what you mean. And I wonder if that actually plays to both angles, both the award-winning literary canon aspect of it, because it, it becomes this novel about modern India that is not explicitly about like Indians living elsewhere or anything like that. And it is about uh, that, that would help it have populist best-selling success as like, you know, tossed around through like, Hey, you should read this interesting book. It's about a family, but it's about India, which like you, maybe you as an American reader in the eighties, you know, or like, you know, you're reading in the 80s and then the book comes out in the 90s and whatever. Like, maybe you haven't read a book set there before. Um, you should check this yeah, out. I, I don't I don't want that description of of it to like undersell. What no, 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 no. But yeah. Is, but but you asked about. I don't know why it had a place in the canon. I, I think that isn't not a part of it. I mean, my take my main takeaway is I, I do not like baby Kachama even okay. one little bit. <laughs> the book does a couple things to try and make her sympathetic. And I think that. I don't think the book wants me to find her sympathetic. It just wants me to understand the way yeah. that she is. It's a subtle sure. difference. Yes, no, there is. Man, I do not like her. Because <laughs> she is just she is just upset and self-serving at every single opportunity. And it just sucks. Well, and that's kind of like, that. Could, that is a useful animator of plot. That is a, a person that a lot of us know, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, I could see how that, even if you don't like her, that's an identifiable part of the book. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a character that we know well, but in this interesting context for some readers. Sure. Okay. Um, and it sounds like you liked the language too. Like you had a couple good passages I, pulled. Yeah. So I, to, to close, like, so I talked earlier about, I, I asked you if you knew what the fireworks factory was like in terms of, of pop culture. It's this ref, it's a reference to the Simpsons uh, itchy and scratchy and Poochie episode where they're all gathered around to watch the first episode with Poochie, this new character and itchy and scratchy drive by the sign that says there's like one mile to the fireworks factory. And then Poochie shows up and he does all this other stuff and Millhouse breaks down sobbing and asks, when are they going to get to the fireworks factory? <laughs> And so the book opens with Sophie Mall being dead and you don't get to the scene where she dies until like 80, 85% of the way in. And, but, but the book does dance around it like constantly, like it references it constantly. It's obviously kind of the nexus of what is going on. And so I did get for a long time, this really strong sense of when are we going to get to the fireworks factory already? And then when she finally does die, it's like, it's like nothing. There was no storm music, no whirlpool spun up from the inky depths of the Mina call. No shark supervised the tragedy, just a quiet handing over ceremony, a boat spilling its cargo, a river accepting the offering one small life, a brief sunbeam with a silver thimble clenched for luck in its little fist. That's, and so I read that yeah. and I was like, Whoa, like mm. there was, there was never a fireworks factory. I created Whoa. the I created the fireworks factory with this strength of my expectations, and that is the point of why it took so long to get there, I guess, and why it was so anticlimactic in a, in a way. Is you just you expect this this event that shapes the whole book to be bigger, mm. and when you finally get there, it's just like bonk. It's bye. yeah. All the small things, indeed. True care, truth brings, you know? I do know. I left you roses we're, by the stairs, Andrew. The other thing I know is that work sucks. I know. Mm-hmm. Something Surprises just... Surprises let me know she cares. Yeah, okay, there it is. Surprise, yeah, thank you. Um, if you want to send us surprises... That's the song that taught me the word commiserate. <laughs> so... 
If you want to send us surprises to let us know that you care, you can send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter at overduepod. Um, a lot of folks in the last... We haven't done a social rundown in a while because we've been recording these out of sequence. Um, but I do have some shout outs. And in particular, a bunch of folks have been like responding to public calls for what podcasts to listen to. And we love being included in those. So thanks to everybody who does that, including Christine, Nathan, Sean, R.A., Kira, Gabby, Amanda, Doug, Carmen, Daniel, Gloria, Blair, Aaron, and many more. Thanks for spreading the word. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website up there. We have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and RSS. Uh, you can also subscribe to the show in Spotify and in Stitcher and on other services. I think you can get it just about anywhere. That's just the strength of our brand, I guess. <laughs> up there on the website, we have links to the books that we have read and are going to read. We also post those on our social feeds, and we've posted the schedules for the rest of... September and also for Spooktober, which is our yep. annual spooky October month celebration. <laughs> Next week, I'll be talking about Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens, and then we'll get into the Spooktober run, which is very spooky. I don't have it in front of me right now, but <laughs> I know th- that it starts with From Hell, which is a graphic novel by Alan Moore and another dude. Um, another so f- guy. <laughs> another spooky guy. <laughs> Drew just all the pictures. Spoo- just two spooky boys. <laughs> uh, so, And also, uh, check out Hellboys. Um, it'll be on the main feed coming up at the end of this month. If you want to get those episodes early and on time, head to patreon.com. That's it, Andrew. Thanks for telling me about the God and their small things. Yeah, you're welcome. It was good. Yeah, it was a good one. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening and for bearing with us as we get back to a normal recording schedule after the schedule interruption. (laughs) That is the birth of my son. (laughs) Until we talk to you next week, everyone, please try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.